1: Oh, kiss
2: you Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. And that's just what we're doing today at Rock and Roll with the one and only Ricky Rockman. He's back on TAIJ telling more stories from his days hosting MTV's Headbangers Ball, sharing tales from his time as the owner of the Cat House in Hollywood of when he did talk radio. He's also talking about a spoken word show called One Foot in the Gutter. He did a handful of shows late last year, had so much fun he booked a 19-date tour. Starts tonight, March 29th in Annapolis, Maryland. Follow him on Instagram for dates and ticket information at Ricky Rockman. That's R-I-K-I-R-A-C-H-T-M-A-N. And keep listening to hear a little preview of the kinds of stories he's telling on stage. He's got so many that he's able to share some unbelievable ones on this show today that are completely different from the crazy stuff he's doing on stage, like the infamous story about Axl Rose chasing David Bowie down the streets of Hollywood and how Axl helped Ricky get the MTV gig. Uh, What led Ricky and the Caddos to being featured in Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2? He's also talking about his own life story, going to jail, losing it all, and what it's been like to come back from that. So Ricky Rockman's coming up, but first, Fozzie, back on the road. We already had some killer shows last week in Bloomington, Milwaukee, Cincinnati. Hobart was sold out. Uh, Milwaukee was crazy. That was maybe the biggest show of the tour. Uh, Johnson City was always fun. But this week, we're headed to Pittsburgh tomorrow night. That's sold out. Louisville, Kentucky on Friday. You can still get tickets for that. Flint, Michigan on Saturday. That's sold out. We hit Columbus uh, 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 on uh, Sunday. There's a few tickets left, but it's really low ticket warning. They actually keep expanding the capacity because we're selling so many tickets. So if you want to go, you should buy tickets for Columbus very soon. Grand Rapids tickets still available. Uh, Then we take a short break and start up again April 13th in Charlotte All dates and ticket information at FozzyRock.com. Come to the VIP meet and greet as well. One of the best of the business. We meet you, take pictures with you, sign autographs, give you a fist bump, uh, play a private concert for you. So much good stuff going on. So hit up FozzyRock.com and we'll see you down the road. All right. Let's get to the sex, drugs, and rock and roll with Cat House founder and former Headbangers Ball host and... The man who is on tour with One Foot in the Gutter. Talking about Ricky Rockman right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho alumni. Uh, the illustrious Ricky Rockman is back uh, to talk uh, this time about something that's really cool. Your, your, your spoken word show, uh, One Foot in the Gutter. And obviously, so many things to talk about and get into. But let's just start off with why did you decide to do a tour
3: like this? Well, first, all you have to do is one show, and you become alumni. Well, yeah, of course, that's what alumni is, right? <laughs> Woo-hoo! I got that going. <laughs> you know, it's so it's so funny because I think that you and I are similar in the reasons that we're doing certain things. For instance, you have a very successful career in wrestling. I've got a lot of jobs that I've been working on, but you go out and play in your band. Correct me if I'm wrong because you love it, because it's really awesome. And the reason that I'm doing these is because I truly, truly love doing this. I did one show in Charlotte and sold out where I got up on stage and I told all these crazy stories and I had like multimedia stuff and part of it's spoken word, part of it's played. it's all storytelling. And then I did five more shows and I loved it so much that I just got all these dates offered and so now I've got like 19 more dates, and the surprising thing is I've got four shows in Australia in June. You know, I've been in the business, I've been working, you know, whether it's MTV or radio or TV or everything for so long, and this is the first thing that I've done that I'm really felt like I love doing this. This is this is my wheelhouse, and and the reason that I say it's sort of similar to what you do is like when you have a, a wrestling event, they're there to see you, but they're also there to see all the other wrestlers and everything like that. But when Fozzie plays, you know, like these people really want to hear my music. When I did Headbangers Ball, you want to see band interviews, you want to see videos. With my club's The Cat House, you went there because maybe Guns N' Roses are playing or because there's lots of girls. But nobody went to the Cat House to watch Headbangers Ball because of Ricky Rackman. Mm-hmm. shows, people come to these shows because they want to hear me talk. So it's, it's very flattering. And I've been busting my ass to give the best shows possible. And it's gotten incredible reviews. So, and I love it
2: it's cool that um, you're going to Australia. I did a bunch of those shows in Australia as well. And actually the guy that's bringing you over uh, silverback touring, we just toured with, with Foz, he's a great promoter. So yeah, yeah. Australia will be, will love to have you, but I I like this element of what you're doing, because like I said, I've done a few of them myself. I just saw Bruce Dickinson, obviously he's made a second career out of doing these shows with the, with the, with the media, like you mentioned, like the videos and then just kind of the examples of the, of the pictures and all that sort of thing. So it's become a thing now in 2023 for guys who can really talk
3: and know how to captivate a crowd to do, to do this. I think it's going to be even more prevalent when there's guys that there's certain musicians that probably should have stopped touring a while ago. And maybe I don't want to see them go up there and play. But if somebody says, look, you can go play a place that fits, you know, 500,000 people and just talk and people want to hear your stories. It's easier. You just travel. I mean, for me, because we're on a budget, I had to sell my car, buy a minivan, and my wife's my tour manager. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of low budget, but like for somebody like Bruce Dickinson or Henry Rollins or or somebody like that, right. I think that's going to be the thing that that people are going to start doing. And for me, it's really nice because there's so many layers, good and bad, that have happened in my career, and just to get up there and tell everything the way it really is, and I do call out names of stories that. I'm not saying throw people under the bus because that's, that's not what I like to do, but there's some stories. There's some pretty messed up things that happen with certain people, but they're all true, so I'm not worried about it.
2: How do you decide how to put together the show? Like you said, you did one, and you know it's a little bit nerve-wracking. I, I know you've done a lot of stuff on camera, but being in front of the live audience is a completely different animal in a lot of ways. It's
3: really nerve-wracking. Everything about it is. I mean, there's one thing that that I probably shouldn't talk about, but it is very stressful. Is the second that I get on that stage, the work is done. That's when the fun happens. That's like, yes, but it's all the other parts that are very stressful. Like, it's like I'm playing on Broadway in New York in a place that fits, you know, 150 people. That's gonna be fun. It's the Iridium, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to play there. But then I'm playing like the day before at the Starland Ballroom, which is massive. It's huge. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, why the hell am I playing? So I'm very stressful looking at ticket sales. And those are the things that I got to just let that go. So (laughs) there's all that stuff that is very nerve wracking and deciding what goes in the show. I've done it a few times. I know it works. One show I talked about the reality shows I did, Daisy of Love and Charm School and had clips of Sharon Osbourne fighting when I was trying to break it up. And it didn't seem like it got a pop from the crowd, so I just dropped it. Yeah. So the good thing is I have so much stuff to pull from. You know, the first show I ever did in Charlotte was three and a half hours long. That's way too long. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to have so much stuff that I I'm like, oh, this is a good one, but I got to get rid of it. Maybe save it for a second show. Mm-hmm. I try to tell the stories that aren't in the Cat House Hollywood podcast, or that people have read in books, or or the ones that people have read about in books, and I tell the way it really happened because so many people have gotten it wrong. But it it's tough to try to decide.
2: But that but that's the thing, which like like I've started doing these. I remember years ago. In Australia, uh, it was called the Soundwave Festival. And Scotty and I did kind of like a co-headlining one. And then also in England, I remember just talking to you right now, we did like a three-part series. Scott did one, I did one, and Duff uh, McKagan did one. So and each time you got to figure out what to do and how, how to streamline it, how to make it better. And also it's almost like, like you mentioned, it's like being in a rock and roll band. This song, I love this song, I love this story, but nobody – it didn't get over. So you got to drop it. You can almost pick the stories that work and kind of use that as your skeleton basis. So you don't want to have the same show every night, but the people in Knoxville didn't hear the the, the show you just
3: did in Charlotte. And there's certain stories that just work and you want to tell them. And that is what's tough. Like I've told the story, the Axel and David Bowie story at the cat house. And I've told that story. And then, you know, and you'll let's say, okay, I'm in Knoxville. Well, next week I'm in Winston-Salem. I'll tell that again. No, it's the first time they have ever heard that story. That's right. So every time you tell these things, you have to realize. And now the thing that it's very flattering, but there's people that have been to two or three shows. I don't know why, but I'm flattered they have. And I tell these people like, you know, I'm like, you know, it's kind of the same show, but it's not. I mean, everything changes just like you can see your favorite band a bunch of times and it might even be the same set list, but hopefully it's a little bit different. But this is different because it's not really songs. It's stories. You know how it's going to end. But every show is different. You feel so much. And I can tell you, I know you understand because you're a musician and from wrestling that every, you can do the same thing, but the crowds are always going to react differently. And you feed off that. So if I'm up there, I I think you played the machine shop in Flint, Michigan. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're going there next week. Say hi to Kevin. (laughs) That place is rules. Yeah,
2: It's one of the best rooms in the country. And it's always sold out. It's always sold out. The reason it
3: rules. Is because the promoter's a rocker. He's a good dude. He treats people right. And if you suck there, it's like the Apollo was for like Motown. If you <laughs> suck there, they'll let you know. But if you're good, you know, they're going to be into it. And so I'm like, oh my God, the Flint Michigan, I'm, I'm just telling stories. And the crowd was just insane. And you feel good. So when you feel good, you got to step in your step and you're, and the show is going a lot better and you might throw some more stuff in there, maybe be a little bit more vulnerable. Right? I, I, I love it. But every show is a little bit different. And, and once again, you're going to have your
2: greatest hits and you mentioned it in, in, in passing, but there might be people listening to the show here and you don't have to tell it in detail, but it's, it is one of the greatest all time cat house stories of Axel and Bowie. Just give us the Reader's Digest version for
3: those of us that haven't heard that story before. It was the greatest night at the Cat House in my opinion, <laughs> but, it, but, I'll, but I'll tell you why, it was October 1980. See, I keep on finding more bits and pieces of it. It was in October, 1989, and Guns N' Roses wanted to play the Cat House, and that's where they shot the It's So Easy video. If you watch the It's So Easy video on YouTube, it says Cat House. Right. They played there. And that night, David Bowie showed up, and David Bowie was a complete mess. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell you the quick story was just a complete mess. And ended up trying to pick up on a girl that just ended up being Axel's girlfriend. <laughs> and it doesn't matter who you are. If you try to pick up on Axel's girlfriend, things aren't going to go right. right. And they didn't go right. And I go into elaborate that. But, it you know, people have read about it in books. Axel was chasing David Bowie down the street. And, you know, my security <laughs> guards are like, Ricky, what are you going to do? Axel's chasing David Bowie down the street. And this is what I did. Okay. And I walked away. <laughs> Something like that. Like, you know, like David Bowie, it's David Bowie, you know, and Axel was one of my best friends, but I didn't know what to do. So I just walked away. There were so many things like that that happened at the cat house. And there's more stuff that happened in that night that I'll go into. But, you know, I never put out a book, which I do hope to do one day. And people would always tell me about these stories. And then I, I read all these books to talk about that, but they don't really tell it the right way. So now I can tell it. The right way, and I and it's not only cat house, it's not only headbangers ball. It's also what was it like when I was went from headbangers ball and being a huge talk radio host to getting in a fight, going to jail, and then end up being bankrupt and being a car salesman, and people recognize me. So mm. I talk about that kind of stuff because it, 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 yeah, it's all great. There's a lot of bad stuff, and it, it's hard sometimes. We live in a society that's weird. Like when someone's really successful, that's awesome. But when they fail, if they get a regular job, then we insult them, even though they've got a regular job like everybody else. Sure. They had something great at one time, but the people like everybody else say, (laughs) ah, look at you. You suck. Now you have a job like me. It's like. Has been. Yeah. Oh, my God. the has been thing. It's like has been. It's like basically calling somebody has been is like, dude, you did something really great one time. I'd rather have done something really great one time than not have done anything. But that,
2: but that's the thing too though, Ricky is it's so hard to have longevity in show business as you know. So that's why it's cool that you're able to do this, the spoken word show, but let's talk a little bit about that. Cause I, I don't really know that's that's that story of yours because uh, I know with Dee Snyder, he's been on and we talked at length about, you know, when, when Twisted Sister hit the skids and suddenly he's the most recognized guy and he's, Putting flyers in a wedding convention parking lot because his wife is doing a w- uh, wedding makeup, and some guy goes, "Hey, you can't put those flyers on that car." Wait, are you D. Snyder? And he just runs. He runs away like he doesn't want anyone to know. So, kind of, how was it for you? And, and, and what happened to get to that? You mentioned you got in a fight with somebody. I know you were a very successful talk radio host as well. Yeah, I so was what, doing what,
3: I was doing talk radio, and at that time, my life had gotten a little bit out of control. The girl that I lived with. Janine was a big porn star. And that was so her we name, were,
2: just Janine, right? Janine was the, was her porn name, yeah. Yeah,
3: I lived with her for years. And this DJ went on the air and started saying all these bad things about her and said all these horrible things about me. And he went on the air saying how he was going to crush me and how he was going to beat me and how I should die. And I was on talk radio. And I went to the radio station. I beat the hell out of him. And I went to jail. Jeez. And then I lost everything i mean i was in an apartment with my power turned off and like less than a year before that i was making pretty good money and you know when you hear about mc hammer being broke in a house with a big swimming pool it's like no i lost everything and i had to you know i had to get a job so the only thing i could think of doing was car salesman i sucked at it did you lose
2: everything because of the legal fees that you had to pay or i had uh, just gotten divorced oh, okay i
3: like to buy things um i was never really good at saving money in hindsight i'm really i'm glad it happened because it made me more grateful and i just worked 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 worked, worked never stopped working till now like my life is really good right now. And now I'm very grateful because it can end at any time. And, and now I'm older. So it's a, t- it's a little bit tougher because I'm not going to be doing this for that many more years. I want to stop and disappear for a while. Mm-hmm. It's really, really tough when everything crashes down and you float for a little bit. But, you know, I did talk radio and nobody would hire me because if they hired me and I got in a fight they would have hired somebody that has already exhibited violence in the workplace. Right, 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 Everybody yeah. knows that. I'm not a tough guy at all, but it was a very valuable lesson about how quickly things can go away. And you know, when I made money, you know, I never made like millions or, or close to a million, but I was doing pretty good. Yeah. So it wasn't like I had millions in the bank. I didn't, I, you know, spend money and, and lost everything.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed?
2: Let's talk about Headbangers Ball because you've been on the scene for so long. And once again, one of my all-time favorite movies to this day is, you know, Decline of the Western Civilization Part 2, which we're going to do a, a watch along one of these days with the quarantine guys. But, but you already were there and you already were part of the scene. And I mean, where did you come from and how did Headbangers Ball and the Catos? Because it was always like suddenly here's Ricky Rockman and he's doing all this right. cool shit. And that was 1987, just out of like basically out of nowhere.
3: When I was on Headbangers Ball, when I did my first show in 1990, that was my first time ever in front of a camera, ever.
2: Okay, so 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 Western civilization was prior to Headbangers Ball? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. wow. So the Cat House was first. Oh, yeah. I thought they were hand in hand. I didn't realize that. No,
3: the Cat House opened in 1986. In the movie, you've seen the movie, Chris. Yeah. In the movie, me and Tammy are saying, yeah, we just wanted a place to get free drinks and meet strippers. Okay, that's really <laughs> why we opened it up. We didn't think we were going to open up a place that I would still be selling cat house shirts worldwide. We never thought that would happen. It was just a place for us to meet girls and to let our band friends hang out. And all of our friends that were starting bands was like, like Guns N' Roses. You know, they were so they decided, hey, you know, we were rock and roll dance club. They're like, can we play at the cat house? I'm like, okay. And then because they played there, everybody wanted to play there. I mean, everybody from Alice Cooper, Motorhead, Alice in Chains, Black Crows, Motorhead, Megadeth, everybody. Everybody, yeah. But because the Cat House started getting famous, then Axl Rose, it's in my show, but most people know that. It was Axl Rose that suggested I get the job for MTV, and he even flew with me to New York for my audition because I'd never flown business class before and he helped me and he set up the audition and I went to New York and, you know, for people to say, "Yo, oh, you wouldn't have gotten your job with Axa Rose. And I say, yep, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay.
2: So were you just a guy on the scene yes. uh, back then? Like, were you, were you even in radio or just a dude no. hanging out? I always thought you were in a band or something. Like, are
3: you in a band or something? Oh yeah, I was in a, I was in it. <laughs> back then I was in a band called Virgin. And nobody ever heard of Virgin, but (laughs) we played the strip and we were a Sunset Strip band and we did, you know, okay. But never, you know, we got a demo deal at one point. We recorded four songs, but nobody ever heard of Virgin. But I'm a hustler, you know, I was a club DJ and I was always getting out there and I knew how to hustle, I still am. I just worked making this club, doing everything I could to make this club, this really, really cool thing. And it just happened to be at the perfect time when everybody was hitting. So as all my friends are getting record deals. They're all helping to promote the cat house. And then as some of these bands are getting huge, they're all promoting this notorious club owned by this punk from Hollywood. And then they are like, Hey, you want to come try and be on MTV? I'm like, okay. And I didn't know anything about TV. Hmm. I started and I got picked up for the job. And then all of a sudden it was like, and I'll never forget this. I was walking through an airport in Denver And somebody was like, Ricky Rackman. So I walked over because I thought, you know, it was a friend or knew somebody. He's like, yeah, I love your show. And I was like, oh, he only knows me because he's seen me on TV. Like at that point, my name was like a product. Yeah. And my name was associated with something else as opposed to somebody that just knew me. And that was a real interesting point in my life because I wasn't just Ricky from Hollywood. Now people knew me outside of Hollywood.
2: So when you're talking about Cat House in in 86, 87, it becomes a thing. Because once again, I remember even being a kid in in Winnipeg, Canada. Like, oh, the Cat House and the Cat House. And I think I told you the story when I first time I went to L.A. in like 91. And there was this big ad on the radio for Vic and the Rattleheads playing the Cat House. And we went there. We couldn't get in. And I saw Lars in front with his big white leather jacket with the tassels on. And I was like, it's real. This is a real place. Vic and the Rattleheads. I'm like, it's totally Megadeth. But um, it was such a big a big thing. So when you talk about like the famous clubs of all time, and I would say f- for me, Cat House is, is the equivalent of Studio 54 in New York for my generation of guys. Absolutely. Would you feel the
3: same way about that? Of course I would, because it was my club. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, the thing is, I own 100% of all the worldwide trademarks on the Cat House brand. And when someone buys a Cat House shirt from CatHouseHollywood.com, it comes from me. But... I sometimes get a little jealous when I see all these movies and books and things coming out and the cat house didn't get that notoriety because I don't have a marketing team. I don't have that. You know, even when they did the Pam and Tommy show, the Tommy Lee character was always wearing cat house shirts, you know? Yeah. It is something that my dream would be to open up a cat house in Nashville right now because you could just play music and it would just, it would be awesome.
2: It would work. Yeah.
3: It would totally work. but. I feel that the Cat House is as well known. I just didn't have the movie. I just didn't have the publicist. I didn't have the marketing team. And I think because of that, it never, like, nobody goes out and buys CBGB shirts anymore or Ed Hardy shirts anymore because everybody wore them everywhere. And I think because it was so much in your face. And part of me wishes that I did have a marketing team that would help me expand the brand. But on the same token, the Cat House brand is still kind of cool you know, it's still kind of, oh, absolutely. But I, but I would also wouldn't mind cashing in a little bit.
2: <laughs> I would love to see a cat house documentary.
3: I mean, it seems like it's ripe for the picking. Have you ever thought about doing that? Yes. If I do what, what my plan is, you know, we always have goals, What my plan is to do this show and then do the book and then make a movie about the cat house, but it would have to be done right because it's not all hoppity boppity. Right. Of course. It's some dark, Stories, you know it, and it was sex, drugs, rock and roll. But yeah, that that would be something that I definitely want to do. But it has to be done by the right people. We have to do it soon because I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a
2: couple stories about the caddos. You mentioned there's some dark side, there's some debauchery. Like, you know, obviously, you know, you could have Paul Stanley talking about you know the whole story of Studio Four. But tell us some of the debaucherous stories from the caddos of things that you may or may not remember.
3: <laughs> I wish I could. Re- all the things I could remember. It was the rule that I had at the cat house was I said you cannot bring. Remember back then, real yeah, time. different
2: times, different times,
3: different times. You didn't have. Not only did you not have a phone that could take pictures, you didn't have a phone with you. Good call. So I said you can't bring cameras in the cat house, and the reason being is I wanted everybody to do whatever they wanted to do and never ever get caught for it. So if a guy. Or if there was a girl that was out there being promiscuous, she could do that and not worry about pictures. And if there was a rock star that met a girl there, he could do whatever he wanted and not worry about it coming back to haunt him. Sometimes I do wish I had pictures, but... (laughs) People felt like they could do whatever they wanted. And the other thing is we never had that velvet rope policy that somebody stands out there and says, oh, the cool people come in. You come in, you stay out. Because the truth is I was always the guy that never got on the other side of the velvet rope. Mm. I hate to use this word right now, but the cat house was very all inclusive without saying that we were like we didn't care what you were into at all just come here and do it and if you were into dressing in drag you were into doing this and people could do whatever they wanted and nobody cared and what was were people having sex in the bathroom absolutely lots of times you know looking back and I looked at Slash's book and he says yeah you know when he came to the club before they were famous, he knew that that I really did want them there. They weren't famous, but I did want them there. So he knew he he could do whatever he wants. So what he would like to do is, he would like to get really drunk and fall down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> and he said it was like before jackass stuff. He would just take pleasure just throwing himself down the stairs. I don't know why, but I remember being at the bottom of the stairs one time, and Slash was holding a big plastic plant falling down the stairs, wearing a cat house security shirt, <laughs> random stuff. But, but to say, you know, I, I keep on using that cliche of sex, drugs, rock and roll, but that is what it was. That is with the way we were living. The drugs ended up killing a lot of people. I stopped at 88, which I'm so lucky because mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been here. If I didn't, we all felt like we were indestructible and we all felt that we could do anything. And at the cat house, we were all the misfit. And at the cat house, it was our safe haven. It was our home. It was, we could do whatever we want with whomever we want and nobody would pass judgment. And I say this, women dressed very provocative, sleazy, and that didn't mean that they were. Yeah, You could have been a woman that ran a business or was a school teacher or a mother. But if you want to go to the cat house and dress up sleazy, that's when you did that. It didn't mean you were sleazy. It meant you could in. so the women had the power. It wasn't degrading. It wasn't anything like that. You might look like a rock star and not be a rock star. It's just like if somebody goes to a cowboy bar and they want to wear a cowboy hat, that doesn't necessarily mean that they've got a horse in their backyard. We could all be whores and rock stars at the cat house, and it didn't really matter who you were. And it got so crazy that women's wear daily and sports were international. And they were all writing walk- about this cat house fashion, which was just pure decadence and pure sleaze, you know, and it was beautiful. It was great. And we all did it.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70 yard field goal. It probably won't go well.
2: ask you this like when you talk about the ecw arena for a wrestling fan the ecw arena or even corican hall in tokyo they have these amazing like mental image of what it was in reality the ecw arena was literally at the time the bingo hall i never even saw the bingo It was just basically a warehouse like the dress rooms in the back were terrible there's no shower corican hall it's, it's just a little like almost like a high school gym was the cat house big? Was it small? Because you're thinking, no,
3: I'm thinking like cat house, you're thinking of like the greatest Vegas club, but that's not the case, right? No, no, no. Well, cat house was in two locations. The first location was a disco on La Cienega that was used in the movie Thank God It's Friday, which was a big disco movie in the 70s. Yeah, I've
2: seen it. Yeah, in
3: 86. I mean, you would seriously walk up the stairs and your leg would fall through the stairs. I put up posters to cover up the mold and everything falling. <laughs> it was this dark, dirty, stinky club. And it lasted there for a year. The When the cat house moved, the legal capacity was probably about 500. Oh, wow. Okay. You would walk up these stairs. There was no dressing room. You had a dance floor. You had a little stage. You had a little bar and you had an upstairs bar and a balcony. What people sometimes don't remember is the Cat House was opened up as a, a rock and roll dance club because I didn't want bands. I wanted people to go there and just dance to rock and roll and hang out and get drunk. But was it this big, beautiful stage? With No, I think the stage was like about this high off the ground. It was very, very small. I think the most people we ever put in there was maybe... 1100, and that would have been really over capacity. But <laughs> I remember 600 would have been like, and, and you mentioned Vic and Rattleheads, you know? Yeah. Vic and the Rattleheads was Megadeth. We couldn't have said Megadeth was playing. Right. Game. You couldn't have said. Yeah. And it wasn't like the greatest sound system, and it wasn't any of those things. It wasn't this big club. And it was also a club that I just rented out. It was only open one night a week. Oh, really? Yeah. The cat house, I didn't own the cat house was called The Probe, which was this gnarly, hardcore, leather, gay disco. I figured, okay, there's this club in Hollywood. I went there and I said, you guys are closed on Tuesdays. Can I just take it over on Tuesdays? Because I figured none of my crowd went to this leather gay bar. And if they did, they probably wouldn't have said, oh, I'm here every Saturday anyway. So people walked into it like it was this new place. I would stick a banner over the thing that said Cat House. And all of a sudden, it was my club. I'd hire my own security and everything like that. So I never owned the building, so to speak. Wow. I made the and they made the bar. And people think like, oh, my God. Well, well, Ricky Rackman had all this money to open up a bar. No, I went to a bar and I said, look, you guys keep the bar. I'll give you this bar guarantee. Just let me have the door. And that's how <laughs> I made my money.
2: I didn't realize.
3: I think I think I, I, you told me this before, but I, I'd forgotten that Cat House only one night a week. Yeah. And then I opened up another club called Bordello that I never really talk about that much, but Bordello was like just a crazy dance club. I remember one time, and, and all of a sudden it became very hip to go to the like dangerous types of clubs, right? Like, right. like you didn't want to go to the nice velvet ropes. So I remember one night, Cher and Michelle Pfeiffer were in the DJ booth and they were like taking their sweaters, they had stuff underneath, but they were like spinning it over their heads. <laughs> a great Bordello story was, we didn't have bands play in the back room. But one night, Glenn Danzig's like, hey, can I play in the blues in the back room? I'm just going to sit up there with a the bottle of wine and play blues. I'm like, okay. Now, most promoters would promote Danzig's in the back room, but I just didn't want to tell anybody. Mm. So people would just show up at Bordello and they'd walk in there and they'd see this guy up there with wine just singing the blues with John Christ on guitar. And people honestly went up to me and goes, Dude, that guy in the back room thinks he's Glenn Danzig. I'm like, yeah, let good at, it, right? <laughs> but that's cool, though, man. I like that vibe. You know what I mean? It was the best, Chris. It was it was the best. And the, the shame is it'll never be duplicated. No, Because back then, people went out. You know, people ask me, what do you think really killed the rock scene? Oh, was it Nirvana? Was it this? I go, I'll tell you what killed the rock scene in LA. What killed the rock scene is they're making a law that you couldn't pass out flyers. Because when you would go to the Sunset Strip back in the 80s, Every single local band was there, passing out flyers, and then there were girls there because all the bands were there, passing out flyers. So you'd go on the Sunset Strip, and there were thousands of people on the Sunset Strip, and it didn't matter who was playing. And you'd walk into the Whiskey because you wanted to see a band. Now it's hard to get people to go to a show at all, especially when they can just look at their phone and look. At yeah,
2: you're right. Even the other day, dude, there's, I was just in Winnipeg and um, just, just an observation, not a big deal either way, but there's a, a bar that it has like a Chris Jericho room. They've, there's like, I don't know, dude, I'm not even kidding. 10,000 Chris Jericho pictures and neon Jericho sayings and I'm from Winnipeg, you ate it, whatever. All these people showed up to say hi because I said, I'll come check it out. You can tell people I'm going to be there. And all the girls were wearing sweatsuits. And I was like, when did sweatsuits become the new thing to wear out? was like that's just really kind of like like you mentioned back back in our day you know you would wear even the guys too like i you gene simmons taught me years ago always dressed like a star and i think that kind of killed a little bit of the vibe the 80s was so over the top that when obviously 90s came in and you everyone says nirvana but just the whole vibe changed to where wearing sweatsuits was okay
3: and to me it was like that's not as rock and roll, you know? No, you had an effort. A guy, and I'm not even talking about the makeup and the teasing hair. A guy would spend an hour to find the right clothes that looked like he just picked them up off the floor. You know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The whole goal is to look like you didn't have. But I mean, we would wear some crazy stuff back in the 80s, but at least we made an effort to go out. And even if you were into like just nothing but the heaviest thrash bands, at least there was still effort put into your battle vest. Yeah, exactly. You know, so you had the right patches on your vest and the right buttons and you had your right uniform. And that way you knew what tribe everybody was in. Oh, yeah. He's into Megadeth and Slayer.
2: <laughs> no, but you're right, though. That's exactly the, 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 what I was trying to say. You know,
3: I mean, there was an effort to going out. It wasn't just, you know.
2: Few few last things about the cat house. You mentioned, you know, Bowie being there and, and obviously you talk about Axel and Slash and kind of the rock royalty. Who were some of the other like big celebrities? Because as you know, Hollywood always goes, What's the cool place to go to tonight? Who else is there? And if Bowie's showing up, obviously
3: somebody told him who else was there. So who else was there? Well, I, I mean if I just mentioned the bands that played there, you know, you've got every band that matters. And I'll, you know, I won't say the bands that I think are the best. I'll just say the bands that everybody knows. Pearl Jam. Alice Cooper on Halloween, Motorhead, Megadeth. The list goes on. It was always a funny story that Christina Applegate would sometimes work in the co while she was on Married with Children. Oh, really? For real? (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah, for for real. I went to the Rolling Stones concert with her. Nice. But it was not like, there was nothing. <laughs> nothing <like Brad>. happened. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> I would love to tell you a better story about Christina. There was, <laughs> there was a story about Brad Pitt waiting in line and asking Bridget Fonda to call this guy Josh because he could get him in. I mean, there's a lot of people that just that showed up there. Depeche Mode at one point was like the biggest fan. And Depeche Mode did a record release party at Tower Records on Sunset, and it caused a riot and they had to shut down the Sunset Strip. So the guys in Depeche Mode, they just went to the cat house and nobody cared. Nobody said <laughs> Malcolm <laughs> Forbes, who's like the famous millionaire, showed up at the cat house. It was crazy, the people that, that, that would show up and the regulars. I mean, anytime you go to the cat house on a Tuesday night. Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols would be sitting out on his Harley parked out front Yeah, because you'd show up at the club and there were like 40 bikes lined up at front because we were very biker friendly. (laughs) I mean, to name the celebrities that were there, I mean, I know as soon as we get off the show, I'll remember them all, but every band played there, every celebrity showed up and we never promoted it because we never wanted to be, I remember there was a magazine called Beverly Hills 213 and they had clubs that were in and the clubs that were out and i remember it said this real popular trendy club was out and cat house was in and as soon as i saw that i was like we're dead that's it we're not the hip club oh. and we lasted like you know maybe two years after that but as soon as we became the trendy thing which was funny because it was very fashionable to go and be dangerous and go to the cat house but our scene was everybody's scene at that time you know
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was probably a way you could have made it work because I'm thinking about like the other kind of standards from that era of the rainbow and the whiskey and even the Roxy, they they all survived, right? In, In the Viper Room, kind of, but Cat House, I don't know, Cat House just had a vibe of being so synonymous
3: with that 80s scene. But the Cat House, we had to stay open. I mean, if there's nobody playing at the whiskey or Roxy, they're closed. Right, people right, didn't right, know right, right. who was playing the cat house. You went to the cat house because you would go. You wanted to go to the cat house. Yeah, and sometimes it didn't matter what was going on there. You would just always go there. I think having it closed when it did, because I just went in a different direction. I was doing TV, I was doing radio, and I felt that you you can't do the same thing and shock people once a week for eight or nine years, you know, yeah. and it's the same thing in, in rock and roll. If, if Bodden does the same show every single time, they're not going to go. If you get in the ring and it's the same match every single week, people are going to be like, Oh my God. You know, I mean, a lot of it's very similar to I'm a big wrestling fan. A lot of it's very similar to wrestling in the way that, that you've got a basic concept. And if you just say what the concept is, it's so very basic. But if there aren't different parts of that concept constantly evolving and a bit of a soap opera, you're dead in the water. And a club like the Roxy and Whiskey, you have a live venue where a band plays and the band gets off stage, and then you leave the venue. Nobody's going to go to the Roxy because they want to be at the Roxy or the Whiskey. You're right. But the Cat House, you'll go to the Cat House. And the Rainbow, you know, I go to the Rainbow, and it's not the same. It's definitely none of the same people are there. It's still fun to go to, but it feels very tired and dated, I hate to say
2: yeah it's got the vibe to it I, especially after lem passed away he was kind of the heart and soul you know you see that statue in the corner it's like yeah
3: he was Lemmy, and lemmy was <laughs> i i love Lemmy. yeah motorhead's the only band i've got two motorhead tattoos <laughs> you know I, I think about lemmy quite a bit and he played the cat house so many times for me when he played the cat house it was like, like They never got paid to play the cadets. He just wanted to make sure that he had his booze there. And he was just (laughs) such a great, great person. But, you know, he was the mainstay. Like, if you go to the Rainbow, you know, you're going to see Lemmy there. Well, when Lemmy went away and the same doorman went away, I don't live in L.A. anymore. But when I went back to L.A. uh, in February, I went back to the Rainbow because you kind of have to. Yeah. It it just wasn't the same.
2: My favorite Rainbow story is I was flying to L.A. and I, I was watching the documentary that came out. It was like, Lemmy, 51% motherfucker 49% whatever it was and, and the whole scene of him sitting at those VLTs in the corner at the Rainbow. I got into town I go to the Rainbow and look who's sitting at the VLTs right there. I was like dude I just saw you in the movie doing this because what the fuck else would I be? And it, was, it was
3: just so funny like he's literally there. He's there you know. Lemmy I think is the only rock star that went many decades without changing that much but he was never stale. Mm-hmm. Like you'll see some of the bands that were around in the 80s or even the 70s. And if they were doing the same thing, it's like, dude, stop. Well, Lemmy didn't really change. He always played just great, great music. And he was always so stripped down. And it was just rock and roll. I mean, that's why, like, Motorhead to me is rock and roll. That's just rock and roll. It's yep. dirty, it's digital. He never got rich for playing rock and roll, but it was just always real. And he stayed the same without being stagnant.
2: I, I, never, I never got really into Motorhead when I was a kid. I got into him a lot, probably about five years before he passed away. And I, I was friends with him probably 10, maybe 10 years before he passed away. We became pretty tight friends. But five years before, one day I just heard it and I went, oh, oh, I get it. This is as good as ACDC. Like, it's that good. Because Lemmy's voice is so gruff and the look of the band. But when you, when you get Motorhead, it's
3: like you said, that is rock and roll. And the catalog is so massive. You know, when I was a kid, when I grew up, I'd listen to more Black Flag than Black Sabbath as a kid. Yeah. And even though I liked punk rock, I liked Motorhead. Because if you listen to that very first Motorhead album with songs like Motorhead, it sounds like punk rock. sounds like the Ramones to me. It sounds like. Yeah. And then as I got older and I got more into metal, Motorhead still came with me. And Motorhead was influential in so many different genres but also as just being just pure motorhead is so pure because it's just yeah. dirty rock and roll and people are like motorhead should be in the rock and roll hall of fame I'm like screw the rock and roll hall of fame they don't need to be in it they're motorhead
1: do you want a beautiful lawn
2: Let, I, I want to talk about the headbangers ball for a bit, but before we get into that, you mentioned uh, wrestling. You were a backstage commentator, backstage interviewer in WCW. After I had left, I remember seeing you on the show. I was like, damn, where was he the three years I was there? But you did have a stint working for WCW.
3: Yeah, and that was so, I was so bummed out because when I work for WCW, I've always wanted to be. A heel manager. That was <laughs> my dream because it's so easy to get people to hate me. I wanted to do it and they had me doing like spring break stuff, you know? So instead, if I was going to work with, I don't know, Vampiro, instead they have me going tough actin to actin and stuff like that. <laughs> but the coolest thing is true. But I did get to help host the Miss Nitro contest. And that was where we met at one bar in Chicago. We met Stacy Keebler. Ah, yes. Stacy was just like, "I'm like, here's this girl that's beautiful and is so nice. She's yeah. just like a really nice person." She ended up winning. But I was working with the Nitro girls all the time. So every time I'd go to a town, it would always be like me going out to dinner with the Nitro girls. And every one of the Nitro girls always looked at me as a brother. Like no girl was ever like, hey, Ricky, it was always like, <laughs> our brother. <Ricky." laughs> but the cool thing is my dressing room would be with Gene and the Brain. That's and great. I would just sit there in the dressing room listening to these guys. And it was just awesome. And I was the guy like, I remember every match, you know, as soon as th- somebody was done with their match, they had to roll out suitcase and they were gone. And as soon as I was done with all the stupid stuff I had to do, I would just sit in the stands and work there. And I mean, I got to ride in limos with Ric Flair and I got to do all this stuff. And I would just get so bummed out because I was like, just let me do something. Let me do anything. And I never did anything. And they kept on having me do spring break stuff. I was <laughs> probably like, in my mid thirties, with a bunch of young high school, college kids, like, "Hey, all right," and it's and it was always like that was the one. It was always like tough acting to act and in. That's what I would do. Those promos, <laughs> college stuff. I had so much fun, but I was always very frustrated because I was never doing anything really, really cool. And I always thought that that would be awesome. But but I learned a lot. I mean, there's a, there's there's a lot of similarities, and you know this better than anybody in the world. There are similarities between rock and roll and wrestling. Oh, a lot of similarities for sure. It's fun. (laughs) Charles Robinson, I see like almost once every two weeks. Charles Robinson lives by me. So I get to see him all the time. And even though I've known Charles and he's a good friend, he was at my wedding. He hates it if I talk about wrestling. That's (laughs) fascinating. That is wrestling. And I love hearing the stories about wrestling.
2: Do you have a great story about about Bobby the Brain Heenan or Mean Gene Oakland? Because those guys are two of
3: my favorites. So funny. Idiots, I'll tell you a story. Um, This is not about either of them. So one night, Eric Bischoff is just drunk off his ass, right? And Eric Bischoff takes me in the bar. and He's like, Ricky, I got big ideas for you in WCW. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like all excited. And he's like, you're going to be the next mean gene. And I said like, I don't want to be the next me. I, I can't be the next because Gene was the best. You know, he was just so good. And he was telling me all these how he's going to make me this great announcer. And I said, I kind of wanted to be a manager and I wanted to do this. And he was just telling me all. And I just remember that him being drunk and nothing ever happened. And I wrote to him, hey, remember when you told me that? That's the story that I remember. I can't remember all the stories that he told me because my memory's so jacked up. But I remember him. Mean, going back to stories about Harley Race and stuff like that. I don't remember that. I mean, I really wish I could remember those stories because, you know, I remember sitting there and thinking like, wow, like this is a really cool place to be. Sure. But being there and working with these guys and and hearing these people tell stories and being so intimidated to meeting some people. Scott Hall came up to me one time being dork guy. And I'm like, so what's the big difference? This wasn't on camera. This is just we were all at a bar. And I'm like, so what are some of the big differences between wrestling in Japan and wrestling in America? I don't know if I told you this story before or not. And Scott Hogg goes, well, in America, they hit you like this. And he hit me in the chest. And he goes, and in Japan, they hit you like this. He hit me in the chest so freaking hard. <laughs> and I just sit there and I was like, wow, what a dick. <laughs> That's about it at the time, right? I remember being really scared and intimidated by Scott Steiner, who ended up being a pretty good dude. But very intimidating though, especially back then he was kind of off his rocker. He was off his rocker. But but I ended up seeing him at a convention probably like three years ago. Couldn't have been a sweeter guy. Was so nice. Yeah. I remember a time that he had real heat with Buff Bagwell and everybody that worked for WCW was really – Anticipating what was going to happen in the match because I think they really wanted to rip each other's heads off. Right. <laughs> so I kind of remember that kind of stuff, and there was all sorts of drama with people getting in trouble during spring break and this and that, and it was fun. I wish I could remember more of all that stuff, but it it was pretty incredible. I mean, I've been very lucky. You know, I'm a NASCAR fan. I had a NASCAR radio show for twenty years. Yeah, and I still do stuff in NASCAR. So all the things that I've always enjoyed, I've been able to. Find a way to meet you know, I love tattoos and my wife's a tattoo artist. It's like, I'm doing okay. I'm really lucky.
1: Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit T r u g r e e n. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people, guaranteed.
2: Uh, let's talk about, about Headbangers Ball because much like the Cat House, it is a famous, legendary, heavy metal show. And I like like you mentioned, I didn't realize it had started that late in 1990. I thought for some reason it was on... Well, drink. you didn't
3: have it because you were in Canada. Yeah, we didn't
2: have it. We, 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 we had the power hour with George Strombopoulos. So that was a little bit, that was all right. Talk about some of the highlights of Headbangers Ball, because obviously this was around the shift between, you know, 90s metal was still going and then 91 suddenly metal became many things. And it wasn't completely, you know, all the bands that you mentioned that played the Cat House with a few
3: exceptions were done at that point in time. Yeah, it wasn't changing of the guards so to speak, but some of it was screwed up. Like, like I hated when everybody would say like, talk about grunge and talk about, well, band grunge bands, like Soundgarden. Yeah. Soundgarden were on Headbangers Ball a lot. And Soundgarden always, to me in the early days, just sounded like a newer version of Black Sabbath. Yeah, totally. And the Headbangers Ball, the thing about me is when I tried to do episodes with bands, I didn't want to do like interviews. I wanted to do goofy stuff and have fun. So, you know, the most memorable things of Headbangers Ball were Dave Mustaine always being mean to me. (laughs) People think that Dave Mustaine hated me, which couldn't have been further from the truth. But people remember that. Nobody asks me, hey, how about that interview with you and James and Lars? Nobody says that, but they're like, oh, Dave hated you. The truth is they always remembered those shows. So I'm totally fine with that. Going to Germany with Danzig and Danzig feeling like he wanted to throw me in the fire for asking him if he would get the misfits back together. But without a doubt, I mean, the, the two shows... I talk. Not only do I talk about them in my one foot in the gutter spoken word show, but I also have some really cool video. Is the Nirvana show obviously because that was such a weird, horrible, uncomfortable situation with Kurt in the ball gown. But the most popular episode of Headbangers Ball was Allison Chains at the water park. Right, know was one of the most dangerous, deadliest amusement parks period that's the one that they actually did the documentary on right oh yeah yeah well i found a videotape of all this raw footage of me and allison chains at the water park so i found it and it's at my house and i don't know if anybody <laughs> owns it so i'm putting it in my show and we're going to talk about that we're going to talk about what's it like when they give ricky rackman and allison chains they get let us do whatever we want at this amusement park that actually killed six people people die yeah and- action park Yes. Action park in New Jersey. Yeah. People used to say, oh yeah, we went on the Alpine slide, which I think was designed to rip the flesh off or the guy that got killed when he went in the kayak and was electrocuted or they had a loop, a <laughs> water slide that had a loop in it and went before they opened the guys that owned the park would pay their employees a hundred dollars to ride that ride and everybody would break their nose on it and they still opened up the park with the loop in it. So insane. Yeah. That was my favorite episode of Headbangers Ball It was mostly everybody's favorite episode. And in my show One Foot in the Gutter, I have a lot of footage of that show and we talk about it. And the cool thing, to bring it back to my show, which is on tour April and May, the cool thing about the show, I'm not just seeing people my age at the show. It's right now we are really seeing a resurgence of people. And I've been yes. talking it for a while. But people always say, oh, it's coming back. It's coming back. I'm like, no, no, no. And now it feels like, I mean, I'm sure at a Fozzie show, you're seeing all age demographics. There's people that are at my show that are like in their 20s. To them, this is just like, wow. Like it'd be me going to see somebody talk about hanging out with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. So to go out and see all these people in the audience of all different ages is really, really cool because... I can imagine what it'd be like when I was younger listening to people telling stories about hanging out with Keith and Mick, you know what I'm? Yeah, totally. Sure, sure. It's very weird that I'm the one telling these stories because I'm just, I'm just Ricky, Mm -hmm. but the stories and, and, and it goes back. Like there's a scene in the show where I'm in my bedroom and I got my skateboard, my land of the Lost stuff, my evil Knievel toys at a record player. And I'm discovering vinyl for the first time and discovering what I believe was the my gateway into metal album and i go through all these different things and so it's it's a lot of more more than me just going up and telling stories
2: but people like that though because because we're all you know fans of the same music and fans of the scene
3: you know the way that we got turned on to music is different than the way and and you know i know i sound like such a that's true though grandpa metal but you know the way that when we wanted to hear a song we couldn't just say hey play something from Deep Purple, play something from Amon Marth. We had to go to a record store or ask if our friends had it. And we had to go, go through the record store and bring it home and wait till we get home and put it on the record and play the whole record and just sit there and take it all in instead of, Hey, play something from, you know, it was a whole different process. Listening to music was different. And I know I sound old when I say this, but it was Pure. you knew about the records because you would read an album cover you'd see what the song were you'd see who they thanked you knew everything you knew who everybody was in every band you knew that okay this is motley crew yeah and nicky was that guy and this is this is kiss and gene is the demon and peter's the cat and ace is the space you knew characters and even in a band like a, a slayer even you had a gary holt and a tom mariah and now i gotta be honest i don't know who the members of all the bands are yeah and there aren't as much characters and rock and roll is so much more about music it's a show i want to know that these guys are this and these guys are this you know and and i'm still the guy that goes and sees maiden and gets excited when a kind of antiquated Eddie gets on stage as a monster (laughs) and instead of saying like that looks stupid and fake I'm like yeah it's Eddie you know I still love that stuff I love to get excited and I'm sure that there's kids that think like okay that kind of looks silly because they want like some CG Eddie to reach out through the crowd no it's not I still love Alice Cooper getting his head cut off even though I've seen it probably 300 times well and
2: that's the funny thing I saw Maiden on the Book of Souls tour that's when uh, Bruce pulls out Eddie's heart out of the Mayan Eddie during Book of Souls the song and the heart is like literally like one of my dogs stuffed animal toys but it's maiden so it works like who gives a shit if it was like you know you know if you went and saw a an bench seven and they pulled out a stuffed animal you'd be like come
3: on you want a beating bloody
0: heart right. but
2: maiden has the grandfather claws where all that's cool you know
3: right and because it's like okay well it's bruce dickinson so bruce isn't gonna do anything stupid yes I mean, who cares if another band has a Three dimensional airplane flying around, and you can smell the fumes. Main has this kind of wobbly bomber floating above the drum set. It's like, okay, that's awesome. That's awesome. Quickly, you mentioned
2: as we start to wind down here, it's a famous part of of Kurt Cobain wearing the, the ball gown. Now, as we look back now, Kurt obviously got great pleasure out of taking the piss out of interviewers. Much like Robert Smith from The Cure or Harrison Ford. Uh, Was Kurt taking the piss out of you that day? Did he not want to be there? Was he just in his own mind having fun
3: with what he was doing? I truly believed he didn't want to be there. But now that I I mean, it's funny. For some reason, after all these decades, I never thought about him actually putting a little effort into it. Because what happened is when I showed up at the show... He was passed out in the green room because I wanted to meet him because I liked the, the album Bleach from Nirvana. Right. I love that song. That negative creep song is just heavy. And I was so excited to meet him. And he was face down in the green room. And I was like, oh, OK. So the first time I ever met Kurt Cobain is when he walks in with his yellow ball gown. It's sort of apathy, but it doesn't you can't pull off that you don't really care when you go to the effort to wear a big yellow ball game right right so i think he didn't care but if you didn't want to be on the show don't be on the show because there's a lot of bands that really wanted to but i think you're right i think it was just kind of trying to just like take the piss out of me yeah that was pretty much what it was but i was very much like a little disappointed because i was so excited to meet kurt and he was just kind of like
2: yeah that kind of seemed to be the attitude that he had which is kind of a drag you know
3: yeah, I, I know that's his thing. But there was something I saw in the interview, where they were on Headbangers Ball in England. And uh, they were saying, you're not Ricky Rakimanov. You're not Ricky <laughs> And they were kind of I was like, oh, that's kind of they, they remember my name. <laughs> it's one of those things that The bad stories stick around longer. And when bad things happen, it makes for a better story. Mm -hmm. And if Kurt would have been on Headbangers Ball and Kurt would have said, yeah, well, you know, this is a Nevermind's a great song. We spent a lot of time working. I can't wait to play it live. So what? The fact that it was very uncomfortable and he wore a big yellow ball gown and seemed like he didn't want to be there. That's a much better story. We wouldn't be talking about it if he didn't. No, exactly. no. like I said, <laughs> nobody asks me about me and James and Lars, but they sure ask about Dave Mustaine giving me a hard time. That's what people like to remember.
2: Last thing, man. Obviously, super excited about the show. One, one foot in the gutter. Is there? Is there a story that that's one of your favorites that you can tell readers digest? Or is like because like, I know you've got the whole thing kind of figured out. What's one of the highlights for you? It's going to sound weird,
3: but my highlight of the show is when i talk about when i lost everything mm-hmm. because and i don't want anybody to think that i'm up here giving like an inspirational sermon but i like to pe- let people know that some of the great things that happened in my life i wouldn't have been in that position if if i wasn't in a really bad place these bad places led me to something else and I I use an example sort of, this isn't from the show, but I use an example. Like I was devastated when I didn't get the job hosting Ink Master. I was promised that job. They booked it out of my schedule. And right before I was supposed to shoot, they said that Dave Navarro got the job Hmm. and I was so bummed out. And then you move ahead three years later and I'm married to the contestant on season (laughs) one, you know, that wouldn't have happened if I got that job. So When I'm telling the bad stuff that happened, I hope people can see like, wow, he was in his apartment with the power turned off, flat broke, and now he's on tour and I'm old. (laughs) You don't know what path everything's going to go in. So I like telling some of the heavy stories and I like telling Allison Chains water park stories because people light up when they hear those stories. Yes, I've told these stories so many times, but like you said earlier, people are hearing them for the first time. And when you, when you're saying up there, like, I still can't imagine what it's like every time you walk in the ring and hear everybody singing your song mm-hmm. and, and every single time the whole arena is singing your song, you know, when you walk over the, the ring, yeah. which people probably don't know is when I go there and my job is I'm not a singer when I'm on stage and I'm talking and people are listening and they're looking and they're, they're riveted to the story. That's to me would be like, what it'd be like. And everybody's singing your song. Everybody's paying attention to what I'm saying. And that is the part that feels so great. And I walk off stage and a lot of stuff is very embarrassing that I tell. But when you walk off stage and and you've, you've shared and bared your soul and people are interested in it, it's a really good feeling.
2: Dude, well said, man. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to see your show. I know. I know. I know. I might have to take a road trip. And Australia, too, it's going to be huge. So this is probably the start of many, many shows like these that you're going to be doing, man.
3: I hope so. And if people want to go to get tickets, I mean, I've got shows from Maryland to Georgia to Chicago to everywhere. And just go to CatHouseHollywood.com and that's got all the links i'm not selling the tickets myself but that's got all the links for the and some clubs are are very small like the iridium in new york city and some clubs are big and some are theaters like seated theaters like normal theaters and (laughs) it's just it's really really like i'm so excited
2: no man it's gonna be great it's great talking to you dude congratulations thanks chris i appreciate
3: it